we see that the climate takes a toll with heat waves all over the world, which is asking for changes even on political levels. But how clearly do politics do something about this? In today's episode, we will talk with Anke Brons, a postdoctoral researcher at Wageningen University, who is driving innovative research in social dynamics surrounding healthy and sustainable food systems and strives to understand consumer behavior. Anke is passionate about understanding how healthy and sustainable food practices are shaped. Her dedication to research and her recent recognition as a Food 100 Honoroo highlights her outstanding contributions as a food change and impact maker. So without further ado, I'm Shaka Vakol. And I am Andres Antondura. And this is Tomorrow's Bites. Well... Uh, Anke, welcome to the podcast. In tomorrow's bites, we always start our discussions by delving into the familiar. It's fascinating how our formative years, our youth, um, uh, well, uh, it can shape who we become and how we act. Could you take us on a journey back to your childhood and share how it has influenced the person you are today? Yeah, sure. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, of course, that's a very big question. Um, I think I might uh, focus it a little bit around food, because that's, of course, my topic of interest, both in research and in personal life, you could say. Um, I think one of the sort of shaping experience for me has been parents both come from the countryside, but they moved to the city um, of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Um, and I grew up there, and so I wasn't really aware of Um, how food grows and everything. Um, and I really realized when I went, when I almost finished my master's, I went um, woofing, so working on organic farm in France. And there I, I worked on a farm with like different kinds of vegetables and everything. And there I really learned about um, seasonality and the fact that tomatoes really are only ready, let's say, in some time during the summer. Um, and I was like, that's just really weird that I'm almost finished with my university degree in Wageningen and I still didn't really know what sort of season each vegetable has. And because everything is just available year round in the supermarket. Um, whereas, of course, there's lots of um, yeah, uh, uh, seasonality in the food system that we can follow um, and that will keep us closer to um, yeah, what food is you know, how, how food is maybe meant to be eaten and everything and keeps us more to a traditional uh, dietary pattern, let's say. So I think that's one of the things that really kind of struck me that that's just really weird how disconnected I had become from food as an urban dweller. Yeah. Um, so I, I, would, I don't know that that necessarily is the one incident that drew me to food, but it definitely is one of the things that really struck me, I guess, as reflecting on my, my life as a city dweller. And now I've actually... I'm now living in Wageningen and I have my own uh, vegetable garden on my balcony with tomatoes that are not ripe yet, I can tell you. So I'm watering them every day. Like, can you actually share us a pivotal moment of experience that shaped your path and led you to your current position? Yeah, so I guess I, um, I'm currently in, a, in a, a research position, obviously, around food. Um, and I, 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 I did my uh, bachelor's in, um, in Middelburg, which was not really related to food at all. But then I went to Wageningen University for my master's. And Wageningen University is, of course, a very food and agriculture oriented university. So without really studying it um, on purpose, I did sort of end up looking at food. And then when I, I remember when I went for my second 
master thesis, I went to Paris through a research institute. And beforehand, I was like, oh, I don't know if I could be a researcher or something. And then I was like, oh, these people really do this for a living. And I was really excited about that. And I really enjoyed it. And um, then I thought, well, why not, why not try continue in this path? Um, and I've always had the, the attitude of as long as I like it, I'll stay. And so far, I've, I've liked it. I finished my PhD last year and I still like most of academia, let's say. So uh, here I am. All your accomplishments within your field, such as actually the obtention of the PhD or having several published papers, invites thinking that apart from hard work uh, and great effort, there must be also a great interest for what you do. Uh, what is what passionates you about what you're doing? Yeah, so I think um, it, that can be answered both in terms of the content and the type of work that I do, right? So I think in terms of the type of work, being a researcher and working with um, people, because I, I am a sociologist by training, I would say, although now I'm in public policy, but anyway, something to do with people and their institutions. Um, I'm just I'm very curious by nature. So I just really like to know, I like to know things. So for me, being a researcher is a very um, great job. I think it just suits me as a person. Uh, and I just really like learning new skills and, and getting to know people. And it just really, I'm, I'm never really thinking about how, I'm not really judging people necessarily, but really thinking more, why would people do it this way? So just if there's a problem, then I, I just look into it. So there must be a reason that this happens in this way. So then I, I go look for the reasons behind it. Um, and that's, so I guess that's why I'm like a researcher, but so that really is a passion, but also in terms of the topic, I think food is just really, really interesting. And it's, um, you can't touch people's food, let's say. So um, I think that's, um, it's a very personal topic for people. And um, especially when it comes to making policy, right? It's like, people are always like, um, yeah, in Dutch, we have this word called betutteling, which is, um, I, I find it really hard to translate into English, but basically the government trying to tell you what to do. Um, and so, especially when it comes to food, people are always like, no, I want to make my own choices. Um, and food is loaded with culture, with religion, with all these kinds of topics. Whereas we do have a really big challenge when it comes to our food system. So there is a, a sort of tension there um, where we can intervene in people's food practices, but also, yeah, how to do that in a culturally sensitive way, let's say, with taking people into account and their ways. Um, that's a big challenge. And I think I won't be done with that until uh, I retire, but uh, I still have a long way to go. So let's see. <laughs> yeah. I can definitely imagine that it is a long journey. Yeah, for sure. Given the significant role in sustainability and the state of our climate play in your life and work, we are actually curious about the underlying reasons for immense, or for actually this immense importance to you. Yeah, so um, oh, let the, phew, it's all, it's such a it's also a really big question again, right? I, it's it's hard because for me it's so in core to who I am, I guess to care about sustainability and about the earth. I think it's uh, becoming more and more part of the younger generations of our population, um, of our, uh, yeah, our Dutch population, but also across the world, I guess. Um, but um, I think a, a general motivation for me is just, I really enjoy nature. So I really enjoy walking in the forest and everything. And just, um, I feel like that's something that should be protected. So that's just kind of a, uh, it's a beautiful, let's say system. And we ruin it by being too many people and, trying to extract too many things from the earth. Um, so the fact that nature is threatened, I feel that as a, um, 
yeah, it's a, a really a big problem, and and it's something that we we don't know how big it's gonna be in the next generations. We just know what's happened over the past few decades or ages even, and it's really not looking good. So I feel like the problem is getting more and more out of control. So that motivates me to work on it every day, I guess. Yeah, that's a really short answer, but yeah. <laughs> no, well, but don't worry. Uh, actually, because this short answer now gives me also the food the to ask. What are the main challenges regarding sustainability from the point of view of Ossosoli? That's my question. Wow. Okay. Another really big question that weren't um, just, it's hard to explain in a few minutes. I guess for me, it's um, um, in my field is more within sociology, it's focused on consumer behavior. So I'm, I mean, there are a lot, a lot of challenges. And I think that's also what interests me about the food system is that nothing is isolated. So even if you look at consumers, they're always influenced by actors further down the food chain and further up the food chain. So there's, it really is a system and you can't just intervene at one point, but uh, it's it's all connected. So I guess that would be the first challenge, maybe, um, at large. But um, when it comes to consumers, I think, like I said, there is this issue of um, people not wanting the government or other actors to touch their food. So they're really um, against any kind of interventions. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, you see the government way of responding to that in many countries is having information campaigns that's like the safest tool um, they have it doesn't really cost them much in the sense that they can just print stuff uh, and telling people you could do this but there's no really sort of um, pressure or um, uh, there's no consequences let's say related to it so i think the fact that um, uh, uh, it's hard to really have like actual interventions touching people's diets um, that's that's a challenge, but at the same time, you do need, uh, yeah, pool. Uh, at the same time, you do need to take into account how people act, um, and so you can't just also develop an intervention and just put it down on people and then see what happens because people are very diverse. There's different age groups, different cultures, um, all different kinds of values. So you also have to do this in collaboration, let's say, with people. So it's also kind of too easy to say, oh, the consumers have to solve everything by themselves. Um, and, um, yeah, so there's many different, I think it's, it's hard to say there's like one big challenge, let's say when it comes to sustainability, um, but, it, but, um, the consumer behavior in general, let's say that's a, a challenge. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think in general, the main challenge is practically, no, we all know what is the main challenge. It is like, uh, earth is, we're destroying earth. And, but that mm -hmm. is, of course, the composition of several a small or a smaller, not a small, but smaller yeah. uh, challenges, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm trying to. Uh, it, that's the thing, though. If you're trying to address one at a time, you, it's important to do that because each one matters. But at the same time, they are all connected. Um, so uh, I think that's also. Uh, what I like about my current research project, if I can say a little something about that, um, is that it's really very interdisciplinary. And so we combine a lot of different disciplines. And I think that gives us a big food system overview. And uh, that's pretty useful. You already gave us, well, already saying that it is really complicated and the effect on consumer behavior. And it plays such a critical role in achieving sustainable dietary choices. Um, and consider your 
expertise, we would love to hear your insights on bridging the gap between consumer behavior and the adoption of sustainable diets. How do factors such as cultural aspects, you already mentioned that one, social norms and accessibility influence consumer behavior? And yeah, what strategies can be employed to encourage sustainable food choices? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I, that's a really good question. And um, thank you for asking it, because I think especially the point about cultural aspects, that's something that I'm quite, um, let's say, passionate about, which it was also part of my PhD research, where I looked at inclusive um, food consumption practices. Um, I think it's really important that we take into account all these kinds of cultural aspects that influence food. Um, so, for instance, the way sustainability is defined or conceptualized also differs very much in different cultures. And it might be that some cultures don't really have a specific term for sustainability, but do practice sustainability, for instance. So it's important to be aware of the different kinds of cultural practices that might be out there that might be sustainable without being explicitly so. So, for instance, um, religious fasting, which might be good for some health and some, you know, there's some, um, I, in my research, I met some Syrian Orthodox um, Christians who uh, didn't eat animal products two times a week, for instance. So these kinds of like practices that could be seen as sustainable, but are often not labeled as such. Um, I, I found them pretty interesting. And it's just one small example, but of course there's many more. Um, uh, also, um, I was a few months ago, I was in a, in a workshop on um, the relation between religion and food waste, for instance, where there can be like, so it can also work the other way around that we want to, um, that the cultural motion can be that you always need to have plenty for guests to come over and that will then encourage food waste. So just to make the point that it's very important when you want to encourage um, sustainable food choices, you need to do it in, in a certain cultural context. So you need to be aware of the kinds of people you're working with um, and that definitely goes for a lot of our cities that are becoming more and more um, multicultural or, you know, yeah, many different ethnicities. Hmm. Uh, one of the most common thoughts when it comes to pursuing a change in behavior is that the consumers or individuals of the society need information. And it was reading one of your papers that actually one of the first things that was addressed was the fact that giving information a lot of times was not necessarily turning into a change in behavior. I mean, right now we are in a moment where we are actually surrounded by information everywhere. It's in, in social media, apart from the, the, the classical media and everywhere, we are constantly receiving inputs from that. Why is information not enough when it comes to making a change in consumer behavior? Maybe in your expertise, more looking into food. Yeah, um, indeed. I also touched upon that a little bit already, right? So information, that's like the preferred option for many uh, governmental actors because it's kind of the, the thing they can do the most easy. So I think that's why it's also pretty popular as a, as a tool, as a policy tool. Um, but we are really not... Um, always let's say very rational people to put it mildly so we are we don't like i don't go to the supermarket and always think about oh i i know exactly what is healthy for me and i know what is sustainable and i'm going to do this um you know sometimes i feel really 
sad and I just want to get some chocolate. And um, then I, th I don't think about it in the supermarket, what is best for me. Or um, I'm really busy after my day and I rush to the supermarket to get some ready-made food from, uh, from, the, from the freezer or something. That, um, I, I, you, can, can, you can forget about the things that you know are good. Because uh, that's like a very sort of knowledge that's really in your brain, let's say. But your body also has a lot of um, routines. So in in, um, in in sociology and in the the, the theory that I usually apply, um, we really talk about people as being routine be beings. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff happens without you thinking about it. Um, so I think that's why information only will probably not be the best uh, solution. However. Um, it is true that routines can also be broken. And so, for instance, there are like life-changing events. So, for instance, when you have a kid or when you move or when you like when you become a student, for instance, these are like formative moments that can automatically break your routines, right? Because you move into a different place or you're in a different supermarket. You now have to take care of your kid and you think, oh, I'm breastfeeding. Now I have to also think about my health, uh, that whatever my kid is getting. So these kind of moments... Those are the moments that you can then, like that information might work. So there are, I'm not saying that it's like a completely bad tool, but I think there, there are moments when it works and there are moments when it doesn't work. Yeah. And now you're currently involved in the Plan Eat project. Um, we were wondering, could you tell our listeners uh, what it actually consists? Yeah. Do you have a... Uh, like an hour? No, it's a, so it's a really big project. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's called Plan Eat as like a play on words on planet and something to do with eat. Uh, and it's a, a, a project funded by the European Union. Um, and we are like a team of, uh, I think, like 20 or 23 or so partners from across Europe. And so we are working with universities, but also with some um, interest groups and all kinds of different uh, stakeholders. Um, on uh, um, healthy and sustainable diets. So it's mostly focused on diets and on consumer behavior. But in the project, we have um, also, yeah, like, like I also said before, we have quite a lot of different disciplines. So me and my colleagues in Wageningen, we are focusing on the, the policy line throughout it. So really looking at um, what kind of policy is currently in place um, and what can we maybe develop based on outcomes in the project as they develop. So it's a four-year project, so it's really big. Um, and the setup is that we focus on consumers. We have nine, um, what we call living labs, which is just a fancy term for field work locations. So there's nine cities in, uh, in Europe um, that we focus our work on. And so all the, all the, all the um, interventions and projects and research that we do happens in these nine cities. And what's nice about them is they are targeting not like, let's say, the usual suspects of uh, the highly educated, white, middle, upper class people. But we also really have um, uh, uh, kids and really like toddlers. And we have uh, primary school kids, high school kids, lower uh, socioeconomic status, people with diabetes. So we really have a lot of different um, groups that we're targeting. So I think that's really a nice asset of the, the, the program. Um, and it takes this food system perspective that I mentioned. So we really focus on... How is, how is everything related to diets also connected to other parts of the food system? Um, so I guess that's like the larger uh, story of the project. And then my job specifically is to look at the policy. And so over the last um, year, roughly a year, I've worked on um, drawing up a, a report on policy that is currently in place in um, 
11 European countries, so two more than the Living Labs, because um, we have two more countries. It also includes the Netherlands um, and uh, a bunch of other countries. And there we just kind of mapped the current state of the art of food policy around healthy and sustainable food consumption. And that was really useful for me as well, because I'm uh, not a public administration person by training. So I really learned a lot by um, getting this overview. And so it was a very nice introduction for me into the world of European food policy. Let's take a short break from this episode. We are immensely grateful that you listen to us every time. It's a privilege for us. If you enjoy what we are doing, please follow us on Spotify. It's completely free. With your support, we will continue to grow and improve this podcast. Lastly, leave us a message in our social media about who would you like to hear in the future or to share your suggestions for improving tomorrow's bites. Now, continue to enjoy this podcast episode. From the information you provide us, uh, one of the conclusions that it seems of what it's been so long your research is that by, exami by examining various food policy domains, it is clear that there are more policy indicators fo focusing on promoting healthy food consumption compared to sustainable food consumption. Surprisingly, there are very, very few policy indicators addressing issues such as unsustainable food promotion, food labeling, or food composition, especially when it comes to incorporating sustainability into front-of-pack labeling. While efforts to promote healthy eating have been like really significant and the importance of implementing sustainable policies seems to be less urgency or priority. Uh, what is your perspective of that this is happening? Yeah, indeed. I think that's very strong. So there were like, it's maybe a relation of, I think, the most, let's say, sustainability indicators out of around 25 that we had were six in, in one country and the most health were, I think, 18. So it's really a big difference. Um, I think there are many reasons for this, but I would think that um, one of the, for instance, for the front of pack, pack labeling, um, you see that, that for health, we now have in some countries the Nutri-Score, and this might be a label that's introduced in different kinds of countries, but already there's a load of, lot of debate about how this uh, algorithm that defines Nutri-Score works and what is taken into account. Is it based on all products or product categories? And um, But if you would do such a thing for sustainability, it would be many, many, many more factors and categories you have to take into account. So for instance... Um, you can talk about um, greenhouse gas emissions, but then it's also related to water use and maybe to land use. So if you have meat, you also use a lot of land for the cattle to graze on. And But what is the quality of the land? Could it be used for something else? And so you have like many, many, many different factors that make it super hard to have one label for sustainability as a whole. So I think that's when it comes to labeling, that's one um, uh, reason for that. I think in general, why we have more health is, I think it's also simply a matter of ma many countries do have like a Ministry of Health or a Department of Health, but for sustainability, I think it's a bit less the case. I think it's maybe, I don't know, it's, I don't know the details, but I think there might be many countries where it's less of a ministry sort of thing. Um, uh, but also to nuance that a bit, there are of course also some policy instruments that are 
put in place for health, but that also work well for sustainability. And so it could be that some of these policy instruments that are there for health also work for sustainability, but it's not explicitly labeled. So that's also the case for, I looked at the Dutch case for this report. So we divided the work with uh, the partners. So I think also in some cases in the Dutch um, example, you saw that there were some things that could be relevant for health and sustainability, but were not mentioned as such, such as like promoting vegetables. It's also good if it replaces meat, for instance. And if you eat fresh vegetables, you also reduce the uh, the traveling. There's less like steps in the producing process. So it doesn't go to a separate factory to be um, processed. So that's also, I guess, a little bit better for sustainability. So there's these examples there where it could be that because of health indicator uh, is there, it could be that some sustainability is still happening. Um, but I mean, and then there's also the fact that, for instance, when it comes to meat, um, in, in the Dutch context, I know that it's, it used to be, I think it was like part of a, supposed to be part of a campaign for the ministry to also say like, don't eat meat. So one of these information campaigns, but then it ended up being cut from the, uh, from the campaign because there was like such a strong industry lobby to cut it. So, um, that's an example. And there was no, there's nothing on meat in any country yet. Well, there are some sugar taxes in some countries. So um, a meat tax is like an absolute no-go for many countries because I think there's a pretty big meat lobby. So yeah, it's a, it's a whole story of many reasons why it's not happening and maybe some positive sides to it might be happening without us seeing. One of the other things that uh, you look into your research that I found really interesting was not only whether the countries apply uh, or not sustainable or health policies but also the level of coercion of of the of the same of them that this actually really related with what you already mentioned before that not only information is needed that there are other levels you know of of uh, severity or i wouldn't know how is the word right now of uh implication that the governments can do, but precisely when I was uh, look, thinking about it, uh, the, the, what come what it came to my mind was what you already commented of this thing of people does not like to you know like like when government implies too much on what people is doing, they all of a sudden feel like they are being uh, privated by the, or, or from of the freedom, no, of the freedom to choose. Seems like when. When the public sector intervenes, it's like all of a sudden, oh no, uh, what about uh, my own decisions? So from your own perspective, wh what do you think of, do you think it's better to impl implement like, more co coercive policies or it must be a balance or or it has to be something that is, uh, how would I say it, uh, like one or two, but not uh, apply too many? Yeah, oh, that's a very tough question. I, I I, don't know, I have to say, I don't know enough about like all policy yet to answer that question in, in, um, in detail. But I think it's, um, to have only voluntary instruments isn't necessarily, I think, a, a bad thing per se. So it really depends on the kinds of, the kind of uh, a domain that you're in, right? I think for the domain, so in my research, we looked at different kind of policy domains, as we call them, so like food composition, um, food retail, 
food uh, provision, so different kinds of uh, domains. And I think in some domains, it's easier to have kind of stronger, so stronger degrees of coercion, so not voluntary, but more regulatory, let's say, instruments than in others. So for instance, in schools, I think this happens in quite a lot of countries, it's kind of like an easy win to say, in schools, we are already providing meals. So this happens in a lot of countries, not the Netherlands, but in a lot of countries, governments provide school lunches. And since they are, they are the ones providing the service, it's pretty easy to then like make it also healthy and sustainable, right? So um, to then say we're serving, we're having like a vegetarian Monday. I think that happens in France, for instance. So in these kinds of situations, it's kind of in this category, let's say it's already a government service. So then it's kind of easy to include the, the, the healthy and sustainability concerns. Um, I think for other uh, domains, it's a bit harder because for instance, with the labeling, the European Union has a law that says that you can't do more than voluntary labeling. So then already it limits your, your options. You can't make it like a regulatory instrument. So there's all these kinds of, these are just some examples, but I know that there is um, there are some differences in the kinds of categories. But what I know, for instance, in food retail, that was one of the categories where there were like two instruments for all countries, so like almost nothing. Um, I know that from the case of the Netherlands, there are many municipalities, so a lot of a lot of this is to do with um, food uh, um, zoning laws. So you can't, for instance, you can't have a snack bar, something that sells unhealthy or unsustainable food within 100 meters from a school, something like this. So this has to do with zoning laws, but a lot of municipalities are struggling to implement this because they don't have the authority. So there's no, no legal framework. So they're looking to the national government to give them this kind of framework so then they can implement it. So it's it's all it, so like these are just some examples I'm giving now from the different domains that have all kinds of different factors that are influencing the reasons why something is a certain kind of instrument and not another. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking that uh, as a as a comment or like a part of this conversation of the coercion that a situation that comes to my mind that is not related actually with the food itself, but that is really recent, that is the, the COVID-19, I mean, makes me think that how, I mean, a lot of policies or a lot of uh, new norms have to be applied in a, a, a short you know, a space of, uh, of time, and they were supposed to be also not for a long time, fortunately. And what... What makes me think about the coercion is the fact that probably it's also a matter of culture, no? Because uh, when it comes to the Netherlands, for example, the Netherlands was much more uh, free to uh, do stuff during the pandemic that in Spain, in Spain, we were closed for uh, two months. Uh, we could not go out. Yeah. And, and and probably it has to part with the culture, with what you expect from, from the people that, that then is makes you think what the government is spread from, from the citizens and maybe yeah. they're wrong, but maybe they're right. And also yeah. it comes to my mind precisely the case of China where uh, the bans are complete, that uh, people couldn't, like, like, could not do anything for, for several months. I, I, I would even say that for a year for what I've, I've heard from, from uh, colleagues. So what I think is that probably the level of coercion that is appropriate for people also depends no, in, in, in the culture yeah. or the, 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 the factor that it plays there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's just in my um, in, in our sample, we had 11 European countries, hmm. but already we could see some. So the diversity was not like huge, but already you can see that there are like, I think, Belgium, the Netherlands and 
Germany are kind of similar in terms of the degrees of coercion of the instruments they have. So the voluntary towards more regulatory and even what we call like the, the well, even the government taking over completely a certain service or uh, uh, something. But in France, it, it is more common that the government takes on these kinds of responsibilities. Mm. So there is like a law in France quite recently about this catering in schools, indeed, that it has to be vegetarian. And they also have a new law that will be active, I think, next year that it also applies for catering in um, uh, non, not in schools, but in workplaces and everything. So it, but it's because the government already runs these catering services, so they can then also do this. So it depends on the kinds of institutions you already have as a country, whereas in the Netherlands, we are indeed very much like, uh, please let us do our own thing. So I think we have a very different relationship to the state, I think. So it's a good point. I think that's definitely the case. Yeah. Also to actually go on on this topic, because we you already mentioned some challenges that governments can face. Um, what are more big challenges that they can face by implementing new food policies to address current health and sustainable challenges? Yeah, so I think um, an, an overall challenge is that um, there are not so, not so many countries yet that have a national food strategy, and that might lead to like sort of incoherence. So you might have one one little thing happening here and then another thing happening in another domain, but it's really not like connected in one vision. Um, and so I think a challenge is that um, many, I think it would be good, let's say, for governments to have a, a national food strategy. So I think there's like, out of our 11 countries, there were five that had a food strategy um, and Germany will have one next year. Um, but um, yeah, there are also quite a lot that don't have a food strategy yet. And then you might get more like fragmented um, uh, policies and of course another like yeah it's kind of an open door but um politics huh that's a that's a big factor that plays into this um because <laughs> you can have one government that's very like um proactive on food and then the next government will be like no 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 that's not happening um and so that's also a big a big thing if you don't make it into law then uh, it's, it's harder to um to change it let's say so i think that's that's definitely just a a, a sort of obvious one but uh, but a big one yeah, and this one that I mentioned about uh, there are not like pretty much no policies on retail. That was very striking from uh, from the the um, the research that we did. So I think that's that's a broad challenge that happens across countries. That, that that's not a domain that they the government feels like they can intervene in, and it may have. I, I mean, I I would love to go into more research as to why that's the case, but um, that's definitely a challenge. I think. Hmm. Moving on more into the future of the food system, uh, the food industry is continuously evolving. From your research and observations, what emerging trends or innovations do you believe that will have a significant impact on shaping healthy and sustainable food systems in the future? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm really nothing of a trend watcher, so I find it really hard to look like far into the future. Um, but what I do see over the past like years is in terms of healthy and sustainable food is meat and meat substitutes. I think that's a, that's a pretty clear one, that that's, the market has really grown tremendously. But at the same time, um, the numbers of meat consumption are not necessarily going down in the Netherlands, at least. So there's, there's a kind of a weird situation where people are eating more meat replacements and then also still consuming the same amount of meat. Um, but I am curious to see where that will go. Uh, and... Uh, we also do some more research on experimenting with that to see what happens if we change 
um, something in people's diets if we tell them don't eat meat for, for a day, what happens and how do people deal with meat substitutes? Because again, this is related to um, meat substitutes has a lot of cultural meanings as well. The way we like to prepare meat with butter, for instance, um, it's also still an animal product. And uh, so there's a lot of practices and cultural meanings and everything related to meat. So it's very hard to change this culture, I think. But I, I would be curious, let's see, to see where, where that trend will be going. And obviously, it's also not a, a silver bullet because meat substitutes, again, have, I think they have a lot of salt. And at least the research is ongoing, let me say it uh, politely, into the healthfulness of uh, meat substitutes. So let's see where that goes. But I am interested to see where that goes because I definitely, I mean, it, it, to me, it's very obvious, whatever you want to say about a healthy and sustainable diets, severely reducing meat is uh, very key. So that's... I think that to achieve that would be amazing. And then another thing that um, I think is definitely influencing us uh, and not necessarily in a good way is that we really have more and more like convenience food. So I think that's a trend that's definitely happening. So we we um, we grow more and more disconnected from our food. We want like ready-made meals and everything. So I think that's definitely on the rise um, and the whole way we shape our supermarkets might be changing. Now already we have, of course, deliveries being made all the time and then it might really change our complete idea of a supermarket um who knows so i think there's a lot of exciting things going on but it's very hard to i find it really hard to predict how it's going because also unless you were mentioning covid and that was a big shape shaking up the system you can't predict these things so um that did make people reflect so it was a breaking of a routine and it did make people reflect but once we got back to normal a lot of people also forgot, I think, again. So um, it's really hard to predict people. So that's 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 what I like about my work. But uh, it makes it makes it hard to predict how things are going. And I think right now in the food industry, there's a, a lot of things going on, like in a lot of fields. Yeah, I think innovation is uh, was never this high. And we actually moved to like collaboration between research, academia, and policymakers. Well, and also stakeholders and in the industry itself, um, it's it's actually crucial to have an impactful change, and yeah, that all these parties work together. And one of these projects is in the planet project where you're already involved in. In your experience, what strategies or mechanisms can facilitate effective collaboration between these groups to drive eventually the positive change in the food system? Yeah, um, I think that's in, in my case of the Plan E project, that's like an, I would say that's an ongoing experiment because it's designed as a very inter, but also transdisciplinary. So also crossing the boundary between scientists and uh, the people, let's say. Um, so indeed engaging with society uh, beyond just our, uh, our own little group of researchers. But we also struggle um, with working with different partners that don't all know how that's being done. So that's really an ongoing challenge. Um, I think what what I, um, from a researcher perspective, I really love to do this kind of participatory and um, transdisciplinary projects, but it's really hard to, I think it takes a culture change as well for many academics. So speaking from my perspective in this collaboration as an academic, um, it's hard to really from the start be very open about shaping up the problem and then collectively working on a solution because often you will already have thought about the problem and then you go into the field and say hi you agree with my problem what do you think should be done and then um, it's not really like very transformative I think 
Um, and again, I also struggle with that in my project because the, the script, let's say, has been written already. Um, so we, we have to perform certain tasks for, uh, for the European Commission. And I mean, they're good and relevant tasks, but uh, there's not too much room for defining the problem together with your stakeholders. And I think that's, I, I really think that's the best thing to do um, is to, to work together with your stakeholders from the beginning. And I think a, a, a sort of nice example of that is I did my PhD in, a, in a, a University of Applied Sciences, which is in the Dutch system, a different kind of university um, that really works more um, in, it, it's a, it's a, it teaches students um, through practice as well. So it's, it's, um, it's classes, but also always research projects in the field. And that I did that in the in the city of Almere, and I was also funded by um, uh, by the research by the, the city council or by the no, just the municipality. Um, so that really was a collaboration between um, researchers, also students. So that's another group I would really want to factor in. Um, policymakers, obviously, and also industry stakeholders from the province. So. Um, that, that was a, a pretty nice initiative. I think compared to my colleagues at university, where I am right now, it's it's easy to get stuck in your ivory tower. And I think it's nice that I was like every day going to work in the city center of Almere, where I could see the people that I was studying. That really shaped my research question. And so I think that was a pretty cool, um, cool thing. But at the same time, you're still forced to um, jump through the, the the hoops of the system, so I had to still like write my papers to get my degree. Let's say so. In that sense, you're still stuck in this machine, and so it's hard to then. Really, you want to then really engage and uh, you know get involved in the policy making and everything. But that's yeah. So this is this is the challenge that I have as an uh, as an academic. But I do feel like it's really important to stay in touch with the with um, yeah reality with society in this way. What will be a goal or the goal or milestone for you to achieve in the future with your work? Yeah, so um, um, I think uh, it's, it's hard because I, I have like a, of course, a huge goal of trying to make the world a better place. But uh, in, in, in the, in, within that bigger story, I'm, I think my, my focus really is on this aspect of inclusion. I think that's really important for me also when it comes to food policy. Um, so to really not focus focus all the time on what we know is happening with the majority group of the people who can speak for themselves, so the, the, the me's, let's say. <laughs> um, but also focus on uh, uh, other groups uh, and what their stakes are and how they would like to see uh, food policy. And so really to be more inclusive in that sense. So that's, for me, mostly focused, been focused on consumption. But of course, you can also think about including farmers and other actors along the food chain. I would love to also learn more about that. But for food policy, where I'm currently focusing on, I'm really interested in, I really would like to contribute to a more inclusive food policy development. And exactly what that looks like, I'm still um, figuring out. But yeah, that's my goal, let's say. Sounds promising. <laughs> well, what, what advice would you actually give the young researchers or aspiring professionals who are passionate as you about contributing to a positive change in the food system? Yeah, um, I think what I see is, it's well, I think the thing is to not give up. So I see a lot of people that are really, we see it also in our university. Um, a lot of people are really overwhelmed by the complexity and the enormity of um, the problems related to our environment and sustainability. Um, 
and it's hard it can be hard to not become like overwhelmed and then just kind of like oh you know nothing matters anymore so i'll just kind of give up but really change that into there may be one thing you can do and so go ahead and do that so i i am like i am fully aware that i cannot change the system but i still want to try and do my bit so try and not be discouraged so focus on what you can do let's say i think that's my uh, my message very nice message and well Thanks. we are now moving to the last questions to the closing questions of the podcast and our favorite question in this podcast Anka is normally we would like to know uh, from our guests what is your favorite food product and you know it can be whatever we leave it open to dishes to whatever is in the supermarket to yeah it's open to you All right, all right. Well, um, if you would ask any of my friends or family, they would tell you cheese. So that's definitely my um, my preferred product. Uh, and that's, I, I mean, I would love to become a, a vegan, but I think the fact that I love cheese so much, that makes it really hard. I, every now and then I try like a, some of these vegan cheeses, but I do keep trying, but I, I they haven't been up to my standards yet. So yeah. I'm really a sucker for cheese. That's, yeah. Any kind of cheese. <laughs> like any kind. No, there's no, not a favorite. Any. No, okay. Ah, uh, no, I mean, no. I, when I go to another country, I always love to go for cheese. So that's really like a shop for local cheese. That's my thing. Yeah, no, but I like to try. I'm curious also when it comes to cheese. So yeah, definitely. Uh, going back to the last question is, what is the most important thing we didn't talk about it in your perspective? I always know, know much, like my, my, my story is focused on consumption and policy. So this kind of end of the food system. But I really like to talk about, I really love to learn more about the impact of um, food production on the soil, for instance. So like, that's something that I really am, I, I find it really fascinating. And I think there's a whole world of uh, sustainability challenges and everything around that. So um, that's something that I would, I can't talk about that, but I think it's good that it is being talked about. So that's something that... Uh, one of the things that comes to mind really re really nice answer i think that is uh yeah actually a really nice topic uh we will now from tomorrow's bite to start moving to see what we can do about it uh so uh we reached the end of the podcast uh thank you anke again for coming here for sharing uh your your story sharing your knowledge and what are you doing Uh, I think for us, it's been really good to discuss about food from another perspective, in this case, about the food policies. And I think for the listeners will be as well something that it will be eye-opening for, for, for several of them. Um, I don't know if you would like to leave any a place or any uh, direction where the uh, listeners can follow the research or or any recommendation that you want to do for them yes there is a website and it's called plan eat so plan eat hyphen project.eu so that's that's a, a website that we keep up to date and there's also a, a twitter and a lot of like socials that you can follow that already try to keep everything updated about what's happening in our living labs so you can follow that okay so Great. now all the listeners know where to go Uh, thank you again Anke. thank you also to all the listeners that uh, stayed until the end of the podcast uh, we would be really grateful if you also leave your follow and if you would leave your comments messages in our social media Instagram and LinkedIn and I don't think 
And we wish Anke all the best for the future, right? Yes, and we wish the best for Anke for the future. A lot of success in your projects. Thank you for coming, Anke. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.